Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, that's the text this morning. The sermon title is Four Chilling Words. Four Chilling Words. The story is told of an old itinerant preacher, evangelist, who found himself the house guest of a man who had once lived on Skid Row. He'd been homeless in downtown Los Angeles, but he'd come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and had become an amazing, sold-out, on-fire servant for God. The once homeless man brought the preacher into a very simple room and told him that he could spend as much time there as he needed to prepare his messages for the upcoming week's services. As the preacher settled in his room, he began to pray about what the Lord would have him to teach in the coming week. And suddenly, as the preacher was there in the once homeless man's small house, praying, he heard a voice from the corner of the room say, You must be born again. The preacher quickly sat up, wondering where the voice had come from. He scanned his surroundings, and he noticed a small caged parakeet in the corner of the room. Looking at the bird, the bird again said, You must be born again. Confused at first, it dawned on the preacher that the the gentleman whose house he was staying had been so captivated by the gospel that he would walk through his house reciting verses. One of those verses was John 3, 7, where Jesus said, You must be born again. And so the parakeet, having heard the homeowner recite these verses over and over and over again, started itself repeating them. It was in this moment that the traveling preacher knew exactly what he would preach on in the coming week's messages. He decided that he would preach about parakeet Christianity. Those are the individuals who, like the parakeets, say all the right things, who have lives that that may be magnanimous on the outside, have all the trappings of Christianity, but yet aren't marked by a growing obedience to Christ. These are the individuals that Paul warned Timothy of who exhibit the external appearance of godliness but yet deny its power. You see, friends, the world is is full of individuals, absolutely full of individuals who verbally identify with Christ but don't have lives that validate that profession. Sadly, the church is also occupied by individuals who have a robust biblical vocabulary. They say all the right things. They have the ability even at times to articulate the truths of the gospel. They are well-spoken. They have a great theological vocabulary. They're active in service and in a variety of ministries. They give of their time and of their resources, but they have never been changed by the very message that they profess to know and believe. You see, it's one thing, friends, to profess Christ. It is another thing altogether to possess him by faith. That's the sticky thought for the message this morning. It is one thing to profess Christ with your mouth, but it is another thing entirely. It is another thing altogether to possess Christ by genuine saving faith. In 2016, the Barna Research Group indicated that 73%, almost two-thirds of Americans, would self-identify as being a Christian. Interestingly, of that 73%, 31 would consider themselves to be practicing Christians, while 41% would consider themselves to be non-practicing Christians. What is that? 
What is a non-practicing Christian? There isn't a such thing. There isn't a such thing. 55% of that 73% who would identify as Christians attend church regularly, while 45% of that 73% don't attend church regularly or they don't attend church at all. You see, from a cultural perspective, to be Christian doesn't say much and neither does it require much. The question is, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus have to say about genuine Christianity? What does Jesus have to say about true conversion? Well, Jesus has been talking about true Christianity and true conversion for three chapters now. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount speaking about the true citizens of the kingdom. They exhibit righteous lives, growing righteous lives. They're marked by obedience, a love for God, a love for people, self-sacrificing, self-denying, giving. Their hearts are, are fixed upward and not attached to the things of earth. The way they treat people, the way they respond, the way they speak, the way they give, the way they pray, their motives are all different. Motives are now to glorify God, not to gain the popular applause of men. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He says, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You know, I know we probably have many goals in life, individually, across here. Probably uh, just came off of making some really grand resolutions. Let me encourage you to let this be the aroma, the goal of your life, that whatever may come to pass, I want to please Christ. Whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Let's not be parakeet Christians who have all the trappings of Christianity, have great theological vocabularies, may occupy seats in church, may serve on boards and committees, and even teach or find themselves in pulpits, but yet do not, do not affirm the power that resides therein. It's just an external performance. Friends, let's turn our attention to our text this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and these are the words that he pens. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points this morning. You can write them down on your outline if you're taking notes. would encourage you to do so. Point number one is the indictment. The indictment from verse 21. Number two is the plea. We'll see that come in verse 22. And then lastly, number three is the verdict. We'll see that in verse 23. The indictment, the plea, and the verdict. Let's look first at the indictment in verse 21. Let me draw your attention there. Look at your Bible. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is undoubtedly bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close here. 
He's bringing his message to its conclusion, to its culmination, to its apex. And at this point, Jesus isn't concerned with further instruction. He's given all the instruction already. Now what Jesus is concerned with is ensuring a proper response to the instruction that he has already given. Our text this week and our text next week are spoken by Jesus to ensure that everything that he has said up to this point is properly understood and is properly responded to. In our text for this morning, that's verses 21 through 23, Jesus warns of the danger of banking our eternal security on a mere verbal profession of faith. Now next week, I encourage you to be with us, verses 24 through 27, Jesus will warn us of the danger of banking our eternal security on mere intellectual knowledge. That's where we're going this morning and next week. Jesus warns this morning of the danger of a mere verbal profession, and next week Jesus will warn us of the danger of mere intellectual knowledge concerning himself. You see, both are important and both are encouraged in Scripture, but neither, mark this friends, neither can be a genuine substitute for obedience. Neither can be a substitute for obedience. Oftentimes they will be a camouflage for genuine obedience, just a mere profession of faith or just mere intellectual knowledge about things of the Bible, about the character, nature, and attributes of God, even the the ability to clearly articulate the gospel message. Those things can oftentimes be a camouflage for true Christianity, but they can never be a substitute for it. In other words, there are many And Jesus uses the word in our text this morning, many. There are many who mistakenly think they are saved, who are in all reality traveling on the broad road. And Jesus has a strong indictment here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Which, by the way, Lord in Jesus' day was a proper term. It meant master, but it, it could have just meant sir as well. But when you put Lord, Lord together, I mean, that is a term of endearment. That's a term of of honor. That's a term of, of extolment. It's reverencing the one to whom you're speaking. So the individuals here that Jesus brings a charge against are speaking very well of him. They're speaking of him in high terms, grand terms, lofty terms, rightly. Lord, Lord. Jesus says, not everyone who speaks that way, not everyone with that kind of vocabulary, not everyone who comes to me with that kind of intensity even will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we've already looked at the broad road and the narrow road, true teachers and false teachers, healthy trees and diseased trees, good trees and bad trees. Uh, trees, good fruit and bad fruit. And so Jesus winds up his message here with a heart-piercing application. Because what Jesus does is he turns his attention from true and false prophets or teachers, that's where we were last week, to true and false hearers of the word. True and false converts. You see, the mere claim to be a follower of Jesus and the mere profession 
The outward trappings of a commitment to him don't indicate whether a person's relationship to him is real or not. Christian discipleship is genuine when it arises from a heart that is transformed by God's grace and because of that inter-transformation, bears itself or displays itself in good fruit. That's what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He said, keep with repentance. How? In bearing good fruit. Or bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And so there's a reality that we need to be aware of here, friends. Let me encourage you to keep your finger, maybe your notes there in Matthew chapter 7. Turn just a handful of pages to the right. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Verses 24 through 30. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. It's probably a familiar text to many of you. It's the parable of the weeds here, or the parable of the tares and the wheat. Let me just read this text, beginning in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, Jesus speaking, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. Here is the reality, friends. Sitting in every single church on the face of the planet are two groups of people. Wheat, genuinely converted believers bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and sitting right next to them are some tares. You see, it's not just the world that has bought into the line of, or the lie of cultural Christianity, but it is displayed within the walls of the local church. Easy believism, cultural Christianity, a Christianity that doesn't demand anything from your life, a Christianity that doesn't point to a narrow road. And people are content, unfortunately, because of the hardness of their heart to sit in the pews week after week after week thinking that their religious experience and their religious activity can substitute for genuine conversion. And it never can. It never can. Religious activity can never substitute for genuine conversion. And so there will always be, within the four walls of local churches, tares and wheat found together in the same field. And so you look at a text like this, you look at this indictment and you say, gosh, you know, Jesus, are, are, are you saying that, that to make a verbal profession of faith is, is wrong? I mean, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, confesses me, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is it a, a wrong thing then to make a verbal profession of faith? And I would say to you, absolutely not. A profession of faith is essential, but a profession of faith alone is inadequate. You catch that? 
A profession of faith is essential, but a profession of faith alone is inadequate. Probably many of you in here this morning have Romans 10, 9 and the following memorized. Or at least it'll come to mind here. Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, same language there, right? And believe in your hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and saves. For Scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, to make a profession of faith is good and right, but a profession of faith apart from obedience is a sham. A profession of faith apart from a righteous life, apart from growing obedience, is a sham. It's a sham. I think we need to be clear about the fact, too, that Jesus is not teaching a works-based theology here. When, when Jesus says, it's not the one who says, Lord, Lord, but rather the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, who will gain entrance into the kingdom, Jesus is not encouraging us or subscribing to any form of a works-based salvation. But, here's the other side of the coin, neither is Jesus teaching that works or practical righteousness don't matter. Okay, that's a razor's edge there, and we need to hold both of those truths with a firm grasp. Jesus is not teaching, the Bible does not teach, anywhere from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that we can earn our salvation. But it is very, very clear that obedience follows genuine conversion. Obedience will always be the fruit of real inner transformation. And so if we don't see fruit, if we don't see growth, if we don't see obedience, then we ought to question whether we are genuinely converted. If the bud of the fruits of the Spirit are not evident in our lives and to some degree growing, opening, flourishing, then we need to ask some serious questions. If I don't have a hunger to know God, not just to know about Him, but to know Him, then I ought to ask some serious questions. If my hunger for the Word is not growing, then I ought to ask some serious questions. If I'm not leaving my past life of sin behind because I have turned my eyes upon Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, then I ought to ask some serious questions. If holiness is not a priority, I need to ask some serious questions. As to the validity of my profession. What Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, he said, These people honor me with their what? With their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Externally, looking at them from the outside, looking in, you look great, like whitewashed tombs, beautiful, but inside, inside, you're. You're full of dead men's bones. The outside of the cup, it sparkles, it glistens, it's so spot-free. But inside, it's filthy. That was Jesus' indictment to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said, woe to you, Matthew 23. The strong language, a strong charge from Jesus to the religious leaders of the day in Matthew 23. Woe to you. He says, you're blind guides. You're the blind leading the blind. Let me me take you back again to last week's message. Why 
Why are there so many people in our world that would culturally identify as Christians? Again, because there are so many teachers, preachers who stand behind pulpits on Sunday mornings and preach a broad way. And so it's easy. There are no commands. There are no demands upon your life. There is no examine yourself, evaluate yourself. Look at your life. See if there's growing fruit. It's just panology. It'll all pan out in the end. God will take care of you. Don't worry about it. Do the best you can. Jesus isn't teaching a works-based salvation here when he says, only he who does the will of my Father, but neither is he teaching that practical righteousness does not matter. You know what the difference is between a profession and possession of Christ is? Well, let me, let, me, let me just rewind here. Let me ask you this question. Do you know what it means to profess Christ? Do you know what it means to profess Christ? I would tell you that it doesn't mean anything if your life doesn't back up what your lips say. To profess Christ can be full of me, and it can be the fruit of an inward transformation, but it can also be meaningless. If it, is, if it is accompanied by a life that doesn't back it up. That's why Peter said this. He said, for this reason, make every effort to supplement or to add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge, knowledge and self-control, self-control and steadfastness, steadfastness and godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, remember we're looking for at least the bud form of these fruits in our lives and we want them to be increasing. Are they growing? Peter says that these qualities are yours and they're increasing. They'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Unfruitful in what, Peter? Well, he tells us. He says, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if those fruits and others are not evident in your life, your knowledge of Christ is merely intellectual. It's merely theoretical and has not become practical. There has been no no inner heart transformation, no no genuine conversion, no heart change, because when that happens, Ezekiel 36, God comes in and he does radical heart surgery. He removes the heart of stone, and he gives the heart of flesh, and he puts his spirit in us, and then he causes us or moves us to walk in his ways. Another way to say that is he moves us or causes us because of that new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit to pursue and to love and to long for righteousness and obedience practically displayed in our lives. It's what James meant when he said in James chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can his faith save him? And he goes on in verse 17 and he says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead exactly what Jesus is saying here in our text in different language. You can boast of great things. You can speak highly, Lord, Lord, about God. You can have an expansive theological vocabulary. You can know the Bible from from cover to cover, from front to back and back to front, all the stories, all the timelines, all the genealogies. You can have Scripture memorized. And be able to quote it as you speak. 
and yet not possess Christ by faith. And so what is the essential characteristic of a true believer? Well, Jesus tells us here. He tells us that it is obedience. You see, the Father's will, the Father's will is not just meant to be admired. It's not meant to be discussed or praised or debated. It's to be done. The Father's will is to be done. That's why Jesus encouraged us back in chapter 6 to pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be what? Be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you say, well, well, gosh, I fail at doing the will of God. And you're exactly right. We all do. But that's why he encourages us to continue in that same prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. We are going to fail. But if obedience is not the characteristic that marks our lives, then we're not truly converted, friends. The will of God in one word is obedience or righteousness, which is the fruit, which is the result, which is the product of inward transformation by God's grace. Remember the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been making that the issue. Unless your righteousness supersedes, excels above that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You won't inherit the kingdom. Righteousness, 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 righteousness has been the theme of Jesus' sermon from the beginning, and it has carried through to its end. And and so let let me just encourage you. Look there in your Bibles. Take take a a turn backwards here and look back at chapter 5. Here are some fruits of righteousness. Look at the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God, do I see that in my life? Is there a brokenness there? Blessed are those who mourn. Am I growing in a hatred, a distaste, a disdain for sin? Not only my own sin, but the sin of the world. That was Isaiah in Isaiah 6, right? He said, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. You see, when our eyes rightly see the king, it resizes and reshapes and decimates us very quickly because it exposes our unrighteousness. And so is there a mourning for my own sin? Am I growing in meekness? Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Am I growing in in being a merciful man or woman? Am I growing in purity of heart? Do I have a desire to be a peacemaker? Not a peace faker, not a peace breaker, but a peacemaker. Am I growing in being salt and light in the world in which I live? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Or do I just merely profess Jesus and keep it all hidden under a bushel? How about my anger? How about my temper? How do I handle it? When someone impedes my will and my ways, do I fly off the hook? Do I smolder? Do I literally melt on the inside and react in vengeance and retaliation? How about the lust of the heart and the lust of the mind? Keeping our word. I mean, loving our enemies. 
Our motivation when we pray, our motivation when we fast, our motivation when we give me, these are the things that Jesus has been continually putting his finger on in our hearts. And what is the issue at the end of the day? It's the issue of righteousness. It's the issue of heart obedience. It's heart obedience that God is interested in. What's going on on the inside? Heart obedience. A false profession will only last until judgment comes. Jesus is most likely speaking about the final judgment in our text here this morning. But I would tell you, sometimes judgment comes in the form of the trials of life. Like the person who received the seed of God's word into the shallow soil of their heart, and then when the troubles and the cares of the world comes, it quickly chokes it out. The commitment fails when the testing comes. See, most people have professed faith in Christ only to deny their faith when, when the realities of life come barging in. We'll see that next week, right? When the, when, when the wind and the rain come beating against the house, how do you respond? Well, it depends on what you built your house on. Number two on your outline is this, the plea. The plea. Look at Jesus' words in verse 22. We're back in Matthew chapter 7 now. Jesus says, on that day... Many will say to me, and here we see again, Lord, Lord. And then here's their agenda. Here's their record. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? This is the plea that individuals will make. There's coming a day, friends, when the curtain will be pulled back and everything will be exposed for what it is. I mean, Paul writes about that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, the Lord will bring to light. I mean, in other words, he'll expose the things that are now hidden in darkness, and he'll disclose the purposes of the heart. And each man will receive his commendation from God. There's coming a day when the curtain will be pulled back, and, and the validity of what we say will be revealed. Was it true or was it False. And in that day, as we see from verse 22 here, there will be many who are surprised. Judgment will surprise many. J.C. Ryle, with incredible pastoral wisdom, says this. He says, the day of judgment will reveal strange things. The hopes of many who were thought great Christians while they lived will be utterly confounded. The rottenness of their religion will be exposed and put to shame before the whole world. It will then be proved... That to be saved means something more than to make a profession. We must make a practice of our Christianity as well as a profession. Let us think often of this great day. Let us often judge ourselves that we not be judged and condemned by the Lord. Whatever else we are, let us aim at being real, true, and sincere. You see, friends, on the day of judgment, when the curtain is pulled back, there will be many who are surprised. Many who thought they were in who are out. Many who thought they had the golden ticket who will hear the verdict, depart from me, for I never knew you. Jesus isn't saying again that it's wrong to say, Lord, Lord, but rather that it's insufficient. I mean, look at these individuals here. They have impressive spiritual accomplishments. I mean, their resume looks pretty good. Look what they say to Jesus. Here's what we did, God. 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Uh, that, that speaks of, of teaching, of communicating the word of God to, to prophesy in your name. Weren't we not teachers in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Do, do you notice the way that they're pleading here? God, we did it all, and we did it all in your name. We did it all in your name. The list might look a little bit different for us today. It might say something like this, Lord, Lord, did we not attend church? Lord, Lord, was I not a part of that committee? And did I not serve here? And, and did I not read my Bible every year in a Bible reading plan? And was I not a part of this Bible study or that Bible study? And I was baptized. Our list might look different. But if our profession is merely verbal, the response will be the same. I was thinking in my study this week, things that won't impress the Lord. First of all, it's not your spiritual experiences. It's not your spiritual experiences. Don't bank your eternity on some experiential high. Don't bank your eternity on some religious experience. The story is told of an old man who enjoyed what he took to be a special outpouring of God's blessing upon his life. What it was, I don't know. But so momentous was this event that he wrote it up in a paper, and he gave this paper the title, quote, My Experience. Months slipped past, and he became indifferent to spiritual things. At first, he preserved the form. In other words, he looked good on the outside, And he hauled out, or he brought out his manuscript to show his various visitors and friends. Again, showing them my experience. But as the months turned into years, even the form of godliness was abandoned. And his experience lay forgotten in a dusty drawer. Many years later, a minister came calling, came knocking on the door. And the man, thinking to impress his visitor, he called upstairs to his wife and said, Dear, would you bring down my experience? She rummaged around until she found the tattered document and she replied, I'm sorry, dear, but your experience is rather moth-eaten. Just so, the man had lulled himself into irresponsible spiritual apathy, coasting along on the memory of some past and distant experience that had no bearing on his current everyday life. Friends, do not bank your eternity on a spiritual experience. Bank your eternity on the received gospel. To those who received my word, to those who believed in me, I I gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or of a husband's will, but born of God. John chapter 1. Have you received the gospel? Don't bank your eternity on spiritual experiences. See, or be here, don't bank your eternity on your spiritual record. That's disastrous. Don't bank your eternity on your spiritual record. God isn't going to weigh your life on a scale. You're either in Christ, clothed in his righteousness alone, or you're in Adam, clothed in your sin. Where the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 reminds us that we've all become like one who is unclean. Our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags, filthy garments before him. God's not impressed with our spiritual record. 
And we certainly have no grounds to trust on it. We're all fallen. Read Romans chapter 3. None of us does good. None of us seeks God. Our throats are open graves. James tells us with the same mouth we, we, we bless and we curse. It's not your spiritual record. See, it's not your position or your spiritual involvement. In other words, it, it doesn't matter how you've scurried about inside of the four walls of the church, quote, doing things for Jesus that is your ticket into heaven. There are many who are involved, who are deceived. There are many in the church who are up to their neck involved, and they know the gospel, and they have a good theology, but they don't obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Obey me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You want to know if you love God? It's not necessarily what our lips say. It's demonstrated by our lives. Your spiritual involvement, it's good. And if we know Christ, we ought to be serving. God has given you a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. And he's given it to you not for yourself primarily, but for the good of the body, for the good of the whole. It is good if you're a believer. And I would encourage more of us, by the way, to be serving in the local church. And not just to pass it off and to expect that someone else is going to get it done. And someone else is going to cover all the bases. And someone else is going to be there to unlock and turn on and clean up and vacuum and and watch kiddos and, and teach the youth and... No, you, you be about doing those things. But don't trust in them. Don't trust in them. D, it's not your spiritual knowledge. There are many people who would say, Jesus, we accept your deity. We accept your virgin birth. We accept your miraculous life. We accept, as in knowledge, accept your substitutionary death. Your powerful resurrection, your intercession, your second coming. You see, these people are respectful. They're, quote, orthodox. They use the right terms. They have the right attitudes. And then notice, Lord, Lord, again, the way they address God indicates their zeal and their passion and their fervency. It's not your spiritual knowledge, though. It's not your spiritual knowledge. Notice that Jesus did not deny these individuals' works, by the way. Jesus didn't look at them and say, you didn't do those things. Jesus accepts what they're saying here. Remember, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Jesus didn't say, stop right there. No, he heard that. Did we not cast out demons in your name and perform many mighty works in your name? Jesus didn't say, no, you didn't do those things. He didn't deny it. What Jesus did say is they didn't spring from a heart of worship. They didn't spring from a transformed life. They didn't spring from the heart of one who had received the gospel and had been changed inwardly and was doing those things, was active in those ways because of the new life that had been birthed within. Again, you must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Of course, Nicodemus was confused. Do I, how, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus said, no, you've got to be born spiritually again. Every single one of us is born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Psalm 51, right? Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And that's why Jesus says you must be born again. You must become alive spiritually. 
Don't trust in, friends. Don't trust in your spiritual experiences. Don't trust in your spiritual record. Don't trust in your spiritual involvement. Don't trust in your spiritual knowledge. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. And not just hear, but let it sink down to the heart. Receive it by faith. You ever thought about the question? Sure, most of you probably have. The answer to the question, why should Jesus let you into heaven? Why should Jesus let you into heaven? If the answer to that question, if the response to that question is anything other than you shouldn't, followed by, but you do or you will, you've extended the offer on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross for me alone, by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, I can receive salvation and flee the wrath that is to come. If our answer has anything to do with ourselves, if it has anything to do with our accomplishments, it's very likely that we're in the camp of those who will hear, away from me. You see what Jesus is saying here in verse 22? He's saying that it's possible to be baptized, take communion, serve in church, be a missionary, preach from the pulpit, and to still never have been born again. And so again, friends, let me encourage you, don't mistake spiritual activity for genuine conversion. A person can be spiritually bright, incredibly busy for Jesus, and still be as lost as last year's Easter egg. So Jesus moves from what the self-deceived individuals say to him on the day of judgment to what he, Jesus, will say to them. Look at the verdict that Jesus renders here in verse 23. Jesus says this, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, just as the self-deceived have made a profession about Jesus, calling him Lord, Lord, so Jesus will also make a solemn profession about those individuals who were never changed by the gospel. And it's interesting to note here, there's actually a play on words. It's interesting to note that Jesus uses the exact same word to declare or to profess. It's homo legeo, means uh, homo, the same, legeo, to say or to speak. To, so to speak the same or to say the same thing. Jesus uses the exact same word when, when we say we make a profession of faith, homo legeo. Jesus here in verse 23 says, well, I'll make a homo legeo about you. I will profess something about you. I will make a public declaration to you. Just as you made an open and public confession about me, so I will make an open and public confession about you. And what is that confession that Jesus will make to those who have only a theoretical knowledge and understanding of the things of God and the gospel, but it's never become experiential It's never moved from the head to the heart. We get four chilling words here in verse 23. Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, we need to be clear about a couple of things here. First of all, God is omniscient. And so when God says, I never knew you. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he isn't saying that I literally never knew the person. 
Matter of fact, the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 139, you formed me in my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And so to know in the Bible, to know means an intimate knowledge. It's used of relationship. Jesus is saying here in verse 23 that he never knew the lost person in the sense of a personal relationship to him. And Jesus knows all those that are his, right? John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They hear my voice and they respond. I know them. In the sense of intimacy, communion, fellowship. Verse 23, Jesus is saying to the one, he's professing or declaring to the one who professes or declares to know him, but only hear between the ears. He says, I never knew you personally, intimately. And so the question I have for you, friends, as we land the plane this morning is, what will you hear? In that last day, what will you hear? Do you know Christ? Better question. Does Christ know you? And what will he say when you stand before him? There's two responses that are given to us in Matthew chapter 25. You can look at these later. Two responses that Jesus gives to individuals on that last day. Some will hear this, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But Others will hear these words, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, which will you hear? Which will you hear? You see, Satan would love who's the deceiver of men, right? Satan would love for you to flitter and flutter about this life, getting all busy for Jesus, and yet never let the gospel sink from your head to your heart. Doing all kinds of religious things, being very active spiritually, but yet never know Christ savingly. He'd love to keep you right there. I'm a firm believer in the doctrine of eternal security. But I would also say that sometimes preachers overemphasize this doctrine to the degree that they give false assurance of salvation. Let me say that again. I am a firm believer, settled believer in the doctrine of eternal security. But I think sometimes the way that preachers and teachers deal with it, they can give a false sense of security. Now, I don't want there to be a healthy or an unhealthy, morbid introspection, but Paul clearly calls us to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I would encourage you to go back and look at this later. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, he says, you fail the test? Unless you fail the test. Well, you pass the test. Do you even know how to pass the test? I mean, these are questions you've got to be able to answer, my friends. And so where is your faith? If your faith is not in the atoning, perfect, sacrificial, redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone, then your faith is misplaced. Think about this for a moment. If your faith is in your faith, it is misplaced. Your faith must be squarely grounded in Christ and in Christ alone. And so examine your life. Are there evidences of God's grace in your life? Are the fruits of the Spirit present and growing? Is there a love for God? 
Is there a hunger for his word? Are you growing in an increasing hatred for sin, a love for holiness, purity, and righteousness? Are these things evident? Are they present in your lives? You see, friends, I would much rather, as a pastor, have you somewhat uncertain about your salvation, but yet striving to work it out in fear and trembling, than to have you blindly traveling down the road only to hear the Lord say, depart from me, I never knew you. I would rather have you trying to work through it, to really wrestle through your understanding of the gospel and its application to your life, and to have a little bit of uncertainty than to give you false assurance and just let you coast down the road, the broad road. Hear me loud and clear. Hear me with grace and truth, but hear me with the broken heart of a shepherd. Countless faithful church attenders will miss heaven by 18 inches. It's the approximate distance between your head and your heart. Countless faithful church attenders will miss heaven by 18 inches. Don't miss it, friends. Don't miss it. They won't miss heaven because they don't know enough about the Bible. They won't miss heaven because they haven't been present and even served the needs of the church. They won't miss heaven because they haven't prayed a prayer. They'll miss heaven because they have never let what they know travel from their head to their heart and change them. They've never been truly converted. Their knowledge of Christ has only been theoretical instead of experiential. They've not clothed themselves in the righteousness of Christ that produces an obedience that is fruit of genuine conversion. Remember Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And so the reason that Jesus will reject, and here's the word again, many. Look at your Bibles. The reason that Jesus will reject many is because their profession was merely verbal and not moral. Concerned only with their lips and not their lives. They'll call Jesus Lord, Lord, but never submit to his lordship or surrender to his will. Matter of fact, in Luke's account, Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord? He uses the exact same phrase, the exact same name of endearment. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And then do not do what I tell you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And then do not do what I say. You see, this is the vital and the eternal difference between saying and doing. If you want to know if you're going to heaven, obedience, springing forth from a changed heart is the litmus test. And so friends, I'll ask you this morning, Will you pass the test? Will you pass the test? Obedience, springing forth from a changed heart, that is the litmus test. Jesus says here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or have you simply been practicing parakeet Christianity? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its practicality. Thank you for its solemnness. Thank you that it searches our hearts and our minds and our motives and our understanding. Thank you that it corrects us, challenges us, trains us, rebukes us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we know that in every church this morning, hearing the teaching of your word, there are both tares and wheat. And God, I pray two things. I pray that the wheat would be encouraged by your word that they would be growing and healthy and vibrant, loving and serving you out of, being obedient out of or springing from a transformed, changed heart, genuinely converted, 
eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, perfecter, the captain of their faith, and for the tares sitting among us, and for the tares sitting in many local churches this morning, I pray that you would bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. That they would not just bank their eternity on what they know or what they do, but they would bank their eternity on what Jesus has already done. Thank you, Jesus, that you walked to Calvary's cross, paying sin's full penalty for those who would believe. You have atoned for, paid for sin for everyone who would believe. Simple, or simple, humble faith and obedience. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.